so if you would please open in your Bibles or your smartphone, whatever it is you use for a Bible, uh, to Acts chapter 1. If you forgot a Bible and would like to use one, there are Bibles on the table in the back of the auditorium. They're there for you to use for the morning or to take with you if you need one. So um, we hope that we've got everybody covered. All right. What a wild week. What a ride, right? <laughs> one snowfall was enough. We've lived here since 1993 and uh, have seen two snowfalls <laughs> in all that time. Never two in three or four days. <laughs> so that's crazy. All right, Acts chapter 1, our study this morning. Let's bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the beauty of the snow, even though it was difficult to, to uh, live through some of the effects. But we thank you that uh, you make things beautiful in our world. We thank you that you even turn those things that are difficult into our lives into good things for you make all things come together for our good. We thank you for that. Lord, as we see in our passage this morning, the apostles had a very high view of Scripture. We're convinced that it was true, reliable, and would be fulfilled. We are convinced as well, Lord. And we come to you this morning recognizing that your word has the power to reach the deepest recesses of our souls, our hearts, our minds, our wills, to change us and conform us to the image of your Son. And that is our desire and our prayer as we study your word this morning. As always, thank you for providing us a salvation we do not deserve and could not earn, but receive by simply putting our faith in your Son. If there's even one here who has yet to do that in their lives, we pray that they would take care of that issue this very day, the most important decision they will ever make, an eternal decision. Now, Lord, open our hearts and minds to understand your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 13, we looked at verses 13 and 14 a little bit last Sunday. I'd like to finish with a couple of thoughts. We read this in verse 13. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, and then it names the... Uh, 11 left of the 12 apostles. Uh, those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. Verse 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Now, I mentioned briefly last week 
that where it is translated in the NIV, they all join together. Literally, that has the idea of harmony, unity, and oneness. In fact, the New American Standard, if you like that particular translation, translates it with one mind. Now, that's an amazing thing to me. They were with one mind because a lot of times we realize that when you get two Christians together, you don't get harmony. Too many times when you get two Christians together, you get heads budding for various reasons. But as I read this and as I studied this, I thought how, how amazing this is that Luke gives us the names of the 11 apostles, minus Judas, of course. He gives us the names, and I thought to myself, they were all of one accord, they were all in harmony, they were all in, had oneness about them, and they're all extremely different people. They're different people. How did they produce this harmony, this oneness? How did God produce it in them? And so I thought it'd be interesting to look uh, briefly at each one of these 11 apostles to see how different they were. Some of them I'm sure you're very familiar with, such as Peter. I'm sure you could do a profile of him better than I'm going to do in just a moment. Most of us know Peter. Some of the others, but many of them we don't know that well. So let's, let's just quickly look at how different these apostles were, and yet they were one in their thinking, one in their prayer, one in harmony. So it shows us it can be done, right? It can be done. Peter, quick to speak when he should listen, quick to act when he should wait. Great guy. I know that Frank loves Peter. I agree with you, Frank. Peter's a great guy. Peter's a great guy. He only ever opened his mouth to change feet. Yeah, just, it'll take a minute. Is it too early? Is that, is that what the problem is? The first, the first service. You know, I try these jokes on both services, and, and often the second service must be more wide awake because because they often laugh, uh, and I, I have, I got to get better with you guys. I've, I've got to, I've got to get better jokes. <laughs> yeah, Peter, Peter was amazing. Peter's a fisherman, and Jesus gave him a fishing lesson. Remember that? <laughs> Jesus gave Peter a fishing lesson. Hey, he said, "Try the other side of the boat." Oh Lord, you, you don't understand. I, I know fish. And of course, Jesus gives him a fishing lesson. Satan sought to destroy him, as well as the other apostles. He denied Jesus three times. That may be one of the greatest things we remember about Peter, that he denied Jesus three times. But always remember that Jesus restored Peter three times. Jesus restored Peter three times. In fact, 
Peter had a private post-resurrection meeting with Jesus. At one point, Jesus met with Peter by himself. One writer said about Peter, he was not in love with Christian work, but with the Lord Christ himself. He was not in love with Christian work, but he was in love with the Lord Christ himself. That's what made his denial that much more bitter. The next name in the list is John. Uh, He's the brother of James, and they were called, they were nicknamed the sons of Thunder! And I'm not even good at sound effects in the first service. i got to work on all of this. Uh, Sons of Thunder. Can you imagine what they must have been like to get a nickname like Sons of Thunder? They weren't milk toasts. Right? Volatile. Volatile. John, however, is also called the disciple that Jesus loved. He wrote the book of John, also a fisherman. His brother James was the first of the apostles to be martyred. We'll get to that later in the book of Acts. Now, the James mentioned here with the twelve, is not James who wrote the book of James, not James who was the head of the church at Jerusalem, as we'll learn later in Acts. That James was the half-brother of Jesus who did not believe in him until after the resurrection. This is James, the other son of thunder. first apostle to be martyred. He was part of the inner circle. We read over and over and over again in the Gospels that Jesus would take Peter, James, and John with him many times when he did not take all of the apostles with him. So James, John, Peter were part of the inner circle. The Jews were pleased at his death That leads many to believe that he was an effective witness. He was an effective witness. Well, the fourth is Andrew. Andrew introduced his brother Peter to the Lord. It was, the Scripture tells us, the first thing he did after following Jesus. The first thing he did, the first thing Andrew did after coming to faith himself was to go find his brother and tell his brother about Jesus Christ, God incarnate, the Messiah. He introduced his brother Peter to the Lord, the very first thing he did. One writer called him a living link between others and the Savior. A living link between others and the Savior. By the way, Andrew was Mr. Can-Do. Why do I say that? Andrew was Mr. Can-Do. He was Mr. Can-Do because he found the boy who had five loaves and two fish that fed the 5,000. While the other disciples were running around and saying, Oh, woe is me! Oh, woe is me! What can we do? What can we do? He was looking for food. 
We can do something. We can do something. So I'm calling him Mr. Can Do. The next one, Philip, is Mr. Can't Do. Mr. Can't Do. Now Philip introduced Nathaniel to Jesus. He introduced Nathaniel to Jesus. But he was also Mr. Can't Do because when Jesus said, what are we going to do? We have 5,000 men, all these women and children. How are we going to feed them? He said, we can't feed them. Let's just send them away. It would take thousands of denarii to feed them. Even if we could find the food in this area surrounding us, Philip said, let's send them away. He calculated the cost of feeding the 5,000 and he concluded it was impossible. I don't know, was he a negative Nelly? I'm not sure. Part accountant? He was Mr. Can't Do. The next is Thomas, and we have dubbed Thomas what? Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas. I hope that you're enamored with Doubting Thomas because Thomas is the guy that's in your class at college who asks the questions you don't want to ask. You know? Or at seminary. He's the, he's the guy who's not afraid to raise his hand and look silly asking the question you wish you could ask yourself. That's Doubting Thomas. Because Thomas gets answers we want as well. He wanted proof before he would believe in the resurrection. But Thomas had great qualities as well. He was ready to die with the Lord in John 11, verse 16, when Jesus said, let's go back. My friend Lazarus has gone to sleep. Thomas is the one that said, let's all go back with the Lord and die with Him. Thomas made one of the greatest confessions of Christ in history. When remember, he said, I won't believe until I put my fingers in his nail prints and in his side and his hands and his feet and his side, the wounds in his side. Do you remember what he said? He fell down before the Lord and said, My Lord and my God. It's one of the greatest confessions of Christ in all of the Scripture. From the doubting one. The one who said, I'm going to need some proof here. Kind of like you and me. Then there's Bartholomew. He's also some believe called Nathaniel. He's the one in John chapter 1, verses 45 to 51, who said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? What he meant was, there's nothing in Scripture about Nazareth. There is about Bethlehem, but not about Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because Nazareth was a nasty place with a bad reputation But his doubts were answered and he became a committed, devoted disciple. 
There's Matthew. He wrote what famous book? Don't be afraid. <laughs> if it's Matthew and it's famous, it had to be Matthew. Okay. <laughs> Matthew wrote Matthew. He's also called, who knows, Levi. And he, his profession was equal crook. <laughs> Tax collector equals crook. That's what he was. Tax collectors were crooks in those days. They overcharged and pocketed the difference. They were considered turncoats to the other Israelites. Yeah, I heard that. They, they are still are considered. <laughs> I, I wasn't going to say that, but thank you for <laughs> giving voice. Uh, Matthew, tax collector. When he met Jesus, he threw a banquet for him, and he did the most wonderful thing. Do you remember what he did at the banquet? He invited other tax collectors and sinners. The kind of people Jesus wanted to reach. The kind of Jesus, the people Jesus wanted to reach. Matthew immediately knew what Jesus wanted. He changed so completely and so quickly. He wrote the book of Matthew. He would have been good, some writers say, with details, with records, and that may, that may be the reason God used him to write the book of Matthew. Then there's James, the son of Alphaeus, and we don't know much about him, he may have been called son of Alphaeus, literally the younger, because of a low stature, or perhaps he was younger, or perhaps it should be James Jr., uh, Alphaeus Jr. There's Simon the Zealot. He was a Jewish revolutionary. There's Judas, son of James. Some believe he's the apostle James' son, or perhaps brother. He's also called other names in Scripture, Jew, Judah, Thaddeus, or other names. In John 14, he puts a question to the Lord. What a disparate group of people. And yet they, with the other disciples, were together with one heart, one purpose, one harmony. That happens when you put and I put the Lord first in our lives. We are one. We lay aside our differences. We lay aside the things that don't matter, the things that aren't important that seems so important. When you and I put the Lord first, when you and I pray together, we put aside the things that divide us. And we focus on the things that unite us. It 
So on one hand, it's amazing when you read all those names, all those people from different backgrounds, different characteristics, and yet they were in harmony, in unity, one with each other because they were one with the Lord. Well, as we go on in this passage, in verse 15, we're going to see, we've already seen that they were people of prayer. We saw that in the passage, verses uh, 12 to 14, that they are people of prayer. We're going to see it again at the end of chapter 1, that they are people of prayer. Now what I want you to see in verses 15 to 26 is that they are people of the book. They had a very high view of Scripture, and you and I ought to emulate them in that. You and I ought to have a high view of Scripture. We ought to be convinced of the reliability of the Word of God. We ought to be convinced that it is without error and is uh, the only guide for faith, the only guide for our lives. They were convinced of that. They were convinced that the Word of God would be fulfilled. They were convinced that when God spoke something, it would come into existence. It would happen. You know, when they were told to wait in Jerusalem, they weren't told to wait and twiddle their thumbs. (laughs) You know, they weren't told to sit back and just kick your feet up and just wait till the Holy Spirit comes. They went back to Jerusalem, joined together their voices in prayer. And uh, obviously, as we read in verses 15 to 26, they were studying the Word of God. They were reading the Word of God. They were discussing the Word of God with each other. I don't know, Chris, sounds like a small group to me. That's a little thing for groups next week that's a little larger group because it says there's 120 in those days that would be quite a small group in those days peter stood up among the believers a group numbering about 120 and said brothers the scripture had to be fulfilled which the holy spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of david concerning judas who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our numbers, a number and shared in this ministry. Peter here takes the lead. Though Jesus is not physically present to direct them, they had the Word of God and they had prayer to direct them. Though Jesus was not physically present to direct them, they had the Word of God and they had prayer to direct them. You and I have the Word of God to direct us. You and I have prayer to direct us. And we have something that at this point they didn't have. We have the Holy Spirit within to direct us, to help us to make decisions before God. I don't think we'll get to it today. We may but I want to talk about how you and I make decisions before God. I want to talk about how we can know 
the will of God. So we may get to that today. We probably won't. Peter had a high view of Scripture. You notice here he said, the Holy Spirit, he said, brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas. Now what he is saying is that what David wrote, David was the mouthpiece for the Holy Spirit, that it was the Holy Spirit behind what David wrote. So when you and I are reading the words of David, we're reading the words of God. That's an important point. That's something that you and I shouldn't miss. When we're reading the words of Scripture, whether they're David's words or one of the other writers of Scripture, we are reading the words of God. Not human ideas, not human philosophy, but that which God the Holy Spirit directed human writers to record without error. What Peter is saying here is exactly what he tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but if you would write down 2 Peter, this is a passage every believer should be familiar with. This is a passage every believer should have underlined It is a pass- or highlighted. It is a passage every believer should have at their disposal to share with others. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture, that is, no writing of Scripture, came about by the prophet's own interpretation. It wasn't the writer's ideas. The writer was used by God The writer was prompted by God to write what they wrote. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's what Peter's illustrating for us back in Acts chapter 1. Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David. We have a name for that, a theological name for it. It is called inspiration. The Word of God is inspired by God. The word inspired means God breathed out. The Word of God. Peter explains the process here. Prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God. Therefore, Peter and other writers of Scripture could tell us that David spoke the words of the Holy Spirit. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean 
that the Holy Spirit overcame him. He became a automaton and, and did that. It doesn't mean that at all. It just simply means that God so guided his life, Peter, Paul, the other writers of Scripture, God so guided their lives that they recorded without error in their own words and in their own style of writing what God wanted required. It wasn't by their will, but it was by the will of God. And it's so important to understand that. The Holy Spirit spoke through the mouth of David as one of the great students of the Word of God said, David was but a spokesman or a mouthpiece of the Spirit. David was but a spokesman or a mouthpiece of the, of the Spirit. By the way, it's the reason I dearly hate red-letter Bibles. You say, whoa, what kind of pastor is he? He hates red-letter Bibles. And on top of it, he's such a hypocrite because he has a red-letter Bible. <laughs> I, I may be a hypocrite, I won't argue that point, but the reason I have a red-letter Bible is because I'm cheap. And it was cheap. It was the Bible I wanted, a Ryrie study Bible. Unfortunately, they're not printed anymore. You have to buy them used. They're well worth you buying a Ryrie study Bible used. They're the best Bible out there. But when I bought mine, it was still available. It was freshly printed, brand new. Sam's Club had a marvelous price on it. So every time I read a passage with red letters, I have to kind of go, I wish you didn't do that. Why? Because it makes it seem like those words are more important than the rest of the Scripture, doesn't it? But they're not. Do you understand? It's not heresy to say that the red words in your Bible are not more important than the black words in your Bible. Do you understand what I'm saying? Why is that? Because the entire Word of God is inspired by God. God breathed out every word of Scripture, red and black. Please, when you're reading Scripture, don't look at it and say, oh, this is really important, it's in red. Because you're going to miss some really important stuff in black. Let me give you another passage that I hope you have underlined in your Bible or highlighted in your electronic Bible, and it's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is God-breathed. King James said inspired. Inspired means God breathed it out. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God or woman of God or child of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I really like the way the New Living Translation translates this. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives it corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. 
God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Back in Acts, that's what Peter is illustrating for us. That's what Peter is illustrating when he says, David, the Holy Spirit spoke through the mouth of David. That's what he is illustrating for us. Peter, representative of the other disciples, had a very high view of Scripture. And do you notice that while they are waiting, they are praying together. While they are waiting, they are in the Word of God together, searching the Scripture. Now, I'm not going to do anything but just name this. Uh, I've taught it numerous times in the past. Uh, I came up with an acronym or acrostic. I never know which is which. So you decide. And uh, to help us understand what the reasons are, we believe that the Bible is thoroughly trustworthy and without error, and it uses the acronym or acrostic Let's take a vote. It's, it's UFACS. UFACS. How many think that's an acronym? How many think it's an acrostic? How many couldn't care less? <laughs> UFACS. The six evidences for the reliability of the Bible. The U stands for unity and consistency, and I, I'm not going to... Get into this. If you want more on this, I'll be happy to supply you with some things. Unity and consistency of the Bible, the fulfilled prophecy of the Bible, archaeology, the way every archaeological find eventually backs up what the Scripture says, even if it initially seems not to back up the Scripture. All you have to do is wait. Unity and consistency, fulfilled prophecy, archaeology, canonicity, that is, how the books were selected that make up the 66 of our Bible. Fascinating study. The T stands for the transmission of the text. Another fascinating study. Some of my favorite classes in seminary had to do with the transmission of the text and how accurate the Bible we hold in our hands today is compared to the originals, which we no longer have. Thank God we don't have them. If we had the originals, somebody would take a lot of cotton and put them on top of there and put a glass thing around it as if it's floating. And everybody would be there. Oh, thank God we don't have the originals. But what we have is 99.5 to 0.9% of what was in the autographs. It's a fascinating study, the transmission of the text. So unity and consistency, fulfilled prophecy, archaeology, canonicity, transmission of the text, and finally self-testimony. That's what we're reading here in Acts chapter 1. Self-testimony. That's the testimony of the Scripture itself. Peter is telling us that the Holy Spirit spoke through the mouth of David. So please remember 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, 2 Peter 1.20 and 21, and if you want to, remember UFAX. UFAX. 
There's a second reason that we see the high view that they had of the Scripture in that day. The second reason is found when we read this. Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled. That phrase comes from the Greek word day. D-E-I. Delta, Epsilon, Iota. It comes from the word day, which means when Luke uses it, it normally means a logical necessity. It's something that has to just logical. It has to happen. When Luke uses it, it means a divine necessity. A divine necessity. Scripture could not fall is the idea. Scripture could not fall. Scripture had to be fulfilled. Scripture had to be fulfilled. That's the meaning here when Peter says, brothers, the Scripture day had to be fulfilled. It was a divine necessity. If the Scriptures were not fulfilled, the Scriptures would fall. And if they fall, then God's not true. The Scripture can't fail. It can't fall. And that's what Peter's saying here. Judas's betrayal, one writer said, was not an unforeseen tragedy, but it was foretold in Old Testament prophecy. He is alluding here to Psalm 41.9, which Jesus applied to Judas in John chapter 13 and verse 18. John chapter 13 and verse 18. I'll just look that up quickly here so we can share this. I am not referring to all of you, Jesus said. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the Scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Later in verse 20, Peter will quote Psalm 69 and verse 25. May his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it. And also Psalm 109 and verse 8. May another take his place of leadership. The Psalms were messianic and spoke of the enemies of the Messiah, the enemies of God's Son. And though Judas is not mentioned in Psalm 69 or Psalm 109, he is marked by Jesus as the one the passage speaks of. He is the enemy with a capital T of Jesus. The Scripture day had to be fulfilled. There was a divine necessity for it to be fulfilled. If Scripture could not be fulfilled or was not fulfilled, it fails and it cannot fail. It cannot fail. Verse 18, with the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong. His body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Aren't you glad we're not having a lunch today? That just would not prepare me for lunch. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akeldama. That is, that's Aramaic, by the way. Most Jews in Jesus' day spoke not Hebrew, but Aramaic. 
That's why several times in the Gospels, you'll see an Aramaic phrase that's explained by the writer because most Jews of that day spoke Aramaic, not Hebrew. Jesus, no doubt, spoke Aramaic. His words from the cross were in Aramaic. Akeldama is an Aramaic word that is field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Now, we have to reconcile Acts chapter 1 with Matthew chapter 27, which tells us it wasn't Judas himself who bought the field. Who bought the field? Anybody know? The priest bought the field. Why did they buy the field? How did they get the money to buy the field? The 30 pieces of silver that Judas got for betraying the Lord turned sour to him, so to speak. And he tried to return it to the priest, and they said, we can't take that money, it's blood money. They gave it to him to betray Jesus. What kind of hypocrisy is that? We can't take that money, it's blood money. So Judas did what? Threw it at him. He said, well, we, we're holy people. We're, we're, we're making sure Jesus dies, but we're holy people. So what are we going to do with this money? So they bought this field. So in a sense, Judas indirectly purchased the field. The money the priests used to purchase the field in Jesus' name was betrayal money. Now, how do we reconcile Matthew, which says Judas hanged himself, and Acts 1, which says he fell headlong and his intestines fell out? Well, it's not rocket science. It means one of two things, that Judas hanged himself and his body, as would be the case, became bloated, swollen, distended, and burst open. Once again, I apologize before lunch talking about that. The other possibility that people see is that Judas hanged himself over a cliff and the rope broke, causing his body to fall and break as he was spilled to the rocks below him. It is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it. May another take his place of leadership. Peter, the other apostles, minus Judas, obviously. The other disciples had a high view of Scripture. And Peter said, it is a divine necessity that the Scripture be fulfilled. But there's a second place in this passage where Luke uses the word day. And that is in verse 21. 
Therefore, it is necessary. That's the word day once again. It is a divine necessity. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. Now, Oh, are there questions here? Right? First question is, should, have they, should they have replaced Judas? Were they getting ahead of the Lord? Was it a mistake? Second question. If they should have chosen somebody, wasn't Matthias a mistake? Shouldn't they have waited till God could raise up Paul? Because we all know Paul was supposed to be the 12. Maybe. Maybe not. I hope you'd like to know the answer to those, but you're going to have to come back next week. We'll get into it next week. And then we're going to talk about, after we answer those questions, we're going to talk about how can you and I know the will of God. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord God, thank you for the harmony we see among these believers in Acts. And Lord, we know we're going to study later in the book that all was not always harmonious with them because they often got their eyes on themselves and their own needs like we do. But when their eyes were on you and when they were one in prayer, one in heart, there was beautiful unity, beautiful harmony. May that be true of Del Rio Bible Church. And thank you for the high view of Scripture that Peter and the other disciples had. Help us to understand how trustworthy your word is and to totally rely upon it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.